0: This is Medieval Death Trip for Tuesday, November 28th, 2023, Episode 104, Concerning the Abacus and Succubus of Jbert Dordiak. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. We're back from our little sojourn into the Victorian age with Richard Garnett's satirical version of the dark legend of Gerbert Doriac, the story The Demon Pope. Today, we'll resume our look at the medieval myth and reality of the man who became Pope Sylvester II. Previously, we heard William of Malmesbury's rather libelous account of Gerbert's career and ascension to the papal seat, a rise allegedly facilitated by black magic. But after that, we looked at the actual known biography of Gilbert, and discussed how his political activities made him some powerful enemies who are likely responsible for the devil-tarnished image that was passed on to later historians like William, and, like today's contributor to the dark legend of Gilbert, the 12th century English writer and court wit, Walter Mapp. We last heard from Walter Mapp in episode 88 concerning the plight of the paterfamilias, in which he was complaining about the burden of being the head of a household. And before that, we heard from him in episodes 50 and 51, where he was complaining about the difficulty of being a courtier of the king. All of these, as well as today's little narrative, come from his book De Nugis Curialium*, or A Courtier's Trifles, a work that's basically nothing but a collection of little comic or satirical essays and anecdotes, essentially Toastmasters material for deploying in after-dinner raconteurship. Among an assortment of legendary material in De Nougas Curialium, we find Walter Mapp's version of the dark legend, one that I almost hesitate to call the dark legend because it seems largely to come from a different branch of the narrative genome. The myth that Mapp relates here has certain commonalities with William of Malmesbury's version, but many of its details are different and unique to Mapp. They are not found in any other texts about Gerbert. This fact helps confirm the argument proposed last episode that the dark legend is not rooted in Gilbert's actual life, but evolved later from a broader set of insinuations which could lend themselves to different permutations of stories loosely centered around the concept of magician-pope. With Walter Mapp's version, it's honestly a little hard to say how much it represents a totally separate branch of oral tradition and how much it might just be Mapp's own whole cloth fiction writing. William of Malmesbury has enough integrity as a historian that one presumes he did at least draw his version from existing sources, uh, however credulous he may have been in doing so. With Mapp, though, it's not far fetched to think that he just took a few sentences worth of dark legend bullet points and invented his own new story off of them without any qualms over fidelity to history. And this is a much more deliberately literary work in its execution than William of Malmesbury's history. Mapp revels in classical allusions and metaphors. Indeed, before we get to the text, we probably ought to gloss a few of those. Uh, so at the start of the story, we find Gerbert not studying magic in Spain, but rather deeply lovesick in Reims. Mapp likens Gerbert's condition to that of the main character in Apuleius' Metamorphoses, also known as The Golden Ass. As both titles indicate, uh, this is the story of a man who finds himself transformed into a donkey by a witch, Uh, not unlike the Roman dancer from the Monk's Digression in our William of Malmesbury episode. The main character eventually finds salvation uh, and recovers his human form through a new, secretive religion spreading across the Roman Empire in the 2nd century AD, preaching the message of a divine savior, That's right, it was the mystery cult of Isis. Anyway, The Golden Ass is an amazing read, uh, and is the earliest fully surviving classical Latin novel. And if you're into medieval literature, it is, alongside the Aeneid and the works of Ovid, one of the major cultural reference points for many a medieval writer, so it's worth getting under your belt. Uh, I do also want to clarify here that Mapp is using his allusion to the Metamorphoses metaphorically. He's saying the love structure bear is like someone transformed into a donkey, not that he has been transformed into a donkey, which I only point out because we are in a story that features magic and curses, so it would be easy to get confused. Oh, and speaking of magic, one last relevant fact about Apuleius, the author of the Metamorphoses. He faced his own accusations of performing unlawful magic during his lifetime. He was accused by his in-laws of having used spells and charms to seduce his wife and win her hand. Uh, She was a wealthy widow, and her adult son, probably fearing for his inheritance, was the one who made the accusation against his new stepfather. Apuleius defended himself, a defense that survives in written form, his apologia. One of the arguments in his defense, uh, bringing us back around to Gerbert the Scholar, was that the so-called magical operations witnesses reported him performing were in fact scientific experiments, Apuleius being both an educated Platonist and a practicing priest of Asclepius, the god of medicine. So just like with Gerbert, we have science being confused with occult ritual, but also with that confusion being stoked by interested parties uh, and not just superstitious peasants. A couple of other classical references we'll come across here. Map refers to Dione, originally the mother of Venus-slash-Aphrodite, though sometimes this is also a name applied to the goddess of love herself, which seems to be the sense in which Map is using it. He also makes much of the mythological dichotomy between Venus-slash-Aphrodite and Minerva-slash-Pallas Athena, or the conflict between love and wisdom within the lovesick soul. And, no doubt to the frustration of the sticklers out there—you know who you are—MAP freely mixes the Greek and Latin names of the divinities, uh, even within the same sentence. So if that kind of thing makes you see red, then get your stress ball out. Lastly, one biblical allusion. The unnamed woman, who is Gerbert's initial object of affection, is later called a daughter of Babylon. This comes from the prophecy of Isaiah, which references the daughter of Babylon, generally taken as a personification of the city itself, who is shown fallen from her former position of wealth and power. Uh, Some quick googling suggests that apparently among certain evangelicals, Isaiah's daughter of Babylon is now interpreted to be the United States, a powerful nation headed towards collapse, uh, heralding the approach of the end times. Which also connects back after a fashion to Gerbert, whose papacy covered the turn of the millennium in the year 1000, and one of the challenges of his turbulent tenure was dealing with the large number of apocalyptic movements that sprang up then, anticipating the imminent end of the world. And with that, let's get to the text. Here is Distinction 4, Chapter 11, from Walter Mapp's De Nugis Curialium, as translated by medievalist and ghost story writer M. R. James. Who has not heard of the fantastic illusion of the notorious Gerbert? Gerbert of Burgundy, a youth distinguished by birth, character, and repute, was busily engaged at Reims in the effort to surpass in intellect and utterance all the students of the school, whether native or foreign, and was successful. At that time, the daughter of the provost of Reims was, as it were, the mirror and marvel of the city. The sighs of all were aimed at her, and she was rich in the vows and aspirations of men. Gerbert heard of her and delayed not. "'He went forth, saw, wondered, desired, and addressed her, "'listened, and was entranced. "'He imbibed madness from the laboratory of Scylla, "'and taught by the metamorphosis of Apuleius to forget, "'did not refuse obedience to her poison, "'and by its power sank to be an ass. "'Strong to bear burdens, impervious to blows, "'sluggish to toil, stupid in skilled labor,' ever prone to kick at any hardship. He did not feel the calamity that fell on him, the blows of chastisement moved him not. Torpid when called to exertion, unready in the face of subtleties, he ever pursued his desire, open-mouthed without any caution, humbly besought, passionately pressed his suit, stubbornly endured, and with his mind's sharpness blunted by his importunity, was weary with settled despair. He fell from his peace of mind and... Disordered and put out of his track, he could no longer manage his property or regulate his affairs. His property therefore dwindled, he was burdened with debts, became a victim to usury, was forsaken by his servants and avoided by his friends, and at last, when his substance was wholly dispersed, lived alone at home, neglectful of his person, unshaven and shabby, rough and untidy, yet fortunate in one point of his misery. I mean that extreme poverty which freed him from love, the chief of miseries, all memory of which is banished by the recollection of the other. These are the costs, Dione, as lamentable as they are fraudful, which you impose on your soldier by way of wages for their warfare for you, and which, at the last, make them objects of ridicule and open shame, or have them made a show to all men after suffering your torments. The poor wretch of whom I am telling, loosed from Venus's hook under the governance of poverty, was ungrateful to her who had freed him, inasmuch as past anguish seems easy when compared with present woe, and he declared that starvation deserved the recompense of the lion who took the fawn away from the wolves in order to eat it himself. One day, Gerbert went out of the town at noon, by way of taking a walk, and was forced by hunger to shed tears, and quite beside himself, fared on step by step deep into a wood, and entering a glade, found there a woman of unheard-of beauty, seated on a large silken carpet, and having before her a huge heap of money. He was quietly withdrawing, with intent to flee, fearing a phantom or delusion. But she called him by name, bade him be confident, and, as in pity, promised him the money he saw there, and a further supply of wealth, as much as he desired, on condition that he would disdain the provost's daughter who had so insolently spurned him, and would cleave to her, not as his lady or ruler, but as an equal and friend. And she went on, I am called Meridiana. Born of a most noble stock, I have always made it my chief aim to find one in all points equal to me, one worthy to cull the first flower of my prime, and have found none but you, who did not fail in some respect to suit me. So, since in every point you are pleasing to me, do not delay to accept all the prosperity which the Most High is reigning upon you from heaven. His creature am I as much as you. For, unless you compel me to righteous anger, you are now blessed with all possible affluence in property and rank. Only, when you have blossomed out once more to the full by my care... You must reject her with that same pride with which she made you miserable, for I know that she will repent and return to what she spurned if she can. Had she indeed hated your suit for love of chastity, she would have deserved favor by triumphing over you. But her only reason was that by rejecting you, who in the judgment of all were most lovable, she might, unsuspected, be kind to others. Under her pretended robe of Minerva, She sheltered Aphrodite, and under pretext of rejecting you, summoned another to enjoy her love. Alas, alas, Pallas was driven out, and a gorgon was covered by her aegis, and the public shaming of you gave shelter to the foulness of a wanton. If, as she deserves, you declare her forever unworthy of your embrace, I will make you preeminent among all the high ones of the earth. You fear, perhaps, an illusion, and are meaning to evade the subtlety of a succubus in my person. You are mistaken. Those whom you fear are equally shy of the deceits of men, and do not trust themselves to any without a pledge of faith or some security, and make no gain of anything but sin of those whom they beguile. If ever, and it is rare, they do bring them success or riches, these pass away with so little profit and so vainly that they are nothing, or else they end in the torment and damage of the dupes. I, however, who am thoroughly acquainted with the honesty of your character, look for no security from you, nor do I even desire to be secured, but only to make you secure. I gladly present all to you, and would have you take away with you what is here before our union, and come back often to take more, till, when all your debts are paid, you have proved that this is no phantom money, and do not fear to pay the just dues of what a true love has spent on you. To be loved is my desire, not to be your sovereign, or even your equal, but your handmaid. You will find nothing in me that you do not perceive to savor of love. A true judgment will not be able to detect any trace of frowardness in me. These and many more like these were the words of Meridiana. But there was no need of them, for Gilbert in his greed for what was offered, interrupted her with his consent almost in the midst of her speech, anxious as he was to be wealthy and escape the duress of poverty, and swift to enter upon the beautiful but perilous course of love. Humbly, therefore, did he promise everything, pledge his faith, and beyond what was asked, join kisses with oaths, but went no farther. Gerbert went away laden and pretended to his creditors that messengers had arrived with supplies, and then slowly, lest he should be suspected of having found a treasure, disburdened himself of his debts. Thereafter, free and affluent in Meridiana's gifts, he enriched himself with household goods, and a crowd of servants gathered to him changes of raiment and money, and grew strong with food and drink, so that his wealth and Rance was like the glory of Solomon in Jerusalem, and his settled joy in love not inferior, though Solomon was the lover of many, and he of one. Every night, she who possessed full knowledge of the past instructed him in what he was to do by day. Such were those most wonderful nights of Numa, wherein the Romans feigned that sacrifices were offered and the gods summoned to conference, whereas he then waited upon her alone, who in nocturnal study secretly distilled wisdom. Gerbert made progress in two branches of learning, of the chamber and the school, and triumphed gloriously on the topmost battlements of fame, as much advanced by the lesson of the lecturer in the study as by that of the lecturess on the couch. The latter led him to the pitch of glory in his conduct of affairs, the former to an illumination of the mind by researches into the arts. Within a short time, no one was his equal. He surpassed all and became the bread of the hungry and the raiment of the needy and the ready savior from all oppression. Nor was there a city to which Rons was not an object of envy." When she heard and saw all this, the daughter of Babylon, wasted with misery, who had brought him down into the depths by her pride, with ears attent expected the usual messages, wondered at and blamed their delay, and realizing at last that she was thrown over, now first conceived the fires which she had disdainfully rejected. She now lived more daintily and went in finer attire, met him with more reverence, addressed him with greater respect— and when she felt that she was altogether fallen into disrepute and contempt, imbibed from that same cup in which she had given madness to her lover to drink, a very rancor of soul. In her frenzy, therefore, she seized the bit, and cared not whether the rein turned or pulled her back. In other words, by all means, she attempted to hook him. But in vain were the snares laid, the nets spread, the hooks cast. The avenger of the old hate, the courtier of the fresh love, refused her all that affection is wont to give, and shot at her every dart that hate can aim. When all efforts were exhausted, her passion grew to madness, and the sharpness of her pain exceeded her power of feeling, and, as the numbness of the limbs gives no scope to medicine, so in her exhausted state her soul was dead to the consolations of hope. At length, an old woman who lived near Gerbert "'aroused her as one raised from the dead, "'and from her hovel pointed him out through a hole "'as he sauntered alone in the midst of a small orchard "'after dinner in the heat of the day, "'and after a little they saw him lay himself down "'under the shade of a gnarled ilex "'and lie quietly sleeping. "'But she was not at quiet. "'Casting off her mantle and clad only in her shift, "'with covered head, she crept beneath his cloak "'and roused him with kisses and embraces.' From the sated man, heavy with wine, she easily obtained the boon she sought. The heats of youth, of the season, of food and of wine, all conspired to induce love. It is ever thus, we know, that Phoebus and Pan, Ceres and Bacchus, defer to Venus, and from their meetings, Pallas is always shut out. She pressed on him with embraces and kisses, refraining from flattery of honeyed words, Until, calling Meridiana to mind, he, overwhelmed with shame and in a state of no little alarm, yet willing to evade her respectfully, withdrew, promising to return, and in the accustomed wood sought at Meridiana's feet forgiveness for his lapse. Long did she look down on him with disdain, but finally demanded his homage as security in view of his transgression, and she obtained it, and he continued safe in her service." Meanwhile, it came about that the Archbishop of Reims deceased, and Gerbert, thanks to his reputation, was enthroned there. Thereupon, too, when carrying out the affairs of his honorable charge, while he was residing at Rome, he was created by the Lord Pope a cardinal and Archbishop of Ravenna, and shortly after, on the Pope's death, by public choice, mounted to the rank of that see. During the whole course of his priesthood, when the sacrament of the Lord's body and blood was celebrated, he never tasted it either in fear or respect, but by the most wary concealment, feigned the act which he did not perform. Now Meridiana appeared to him in the last year of his papacy and intimated to him that his life was safe until he celebrated Mass in Jerusalem, and, as he lived at Rome, he thought he could avoid doing this at his pleasure. But it befell him to celebrate in that place where, they say, the board is laid up which Pilate affixed to the top of the Lord's cross, inscribed with the title of his passion, and that church is to this day called Jerusalem. And lo, there over against him was Meridiana, exulting as if for joy at his speedy coming to her. When he saw and recognized her and learned the name of the place, he called together all the cardinals, the clergy and the people, made a public confession, and kept no blemish of all his career unrevealed. He further ordained that thenceforth the consecration of the elements should be performed over against the clergy and the people to their face. Hence, many celebrate with the altar between themselves and the people, but the Lord Pope receives the sacrament seated face to face with all. Gerbert hallowed the short remainder of his life with assiduous and severe penance, and died in a good confession. He is buried in the church of St. John Lateran in a marble tomb which continually sweats, but the drops do not join into a stream except to predict the death of some wealthy Roman. They say that when the departure of the Lord Pope is imminent, the stream runs down to the ground. When that of some noble, it oozes out to a third, a quarter, or a fifth part of the height, as if to indicate the quality of each by the scantiness or volume of its flow. Although through covetousness Gerbert was held captive a long time by the birdlime of the devil, he ruled the Roman church greatly and with a strong hand. In the times of each and all of his successors, something has dropped away from her possessions. So there you have another take on the dark legend of Gerbert Doriac. And now I have to apologize to Meridiana for implying in the title of this episode that she is a succubus. She asserts quite specifically that she is not, but the pairing of succubus with Abacus was just too good to pass up. However, that does leave us with the question of just what she is. If she's not a demon, is she an angel? or something else. One possibility can be found in another story that has several parallels to Mapp's version of the dark legend. This is the tale of Lanval, Knight of the Round Table, as written by Marie de France in the late 12th century, roughly contemporary with Walter Mapp. Like Gerbert, Lanval finds himself fallen into poverty despite his excellence as a knight. One day he walks out into the woods where he encounters a lady of unearthly beauty who promises him all the wealth he needs if he becomes her lover, on condition that he never reveal her existence. Restored to high status through his newfound wealth, Lanval catches the wandering eye of Queen Guinevere, who tries and fails to seduce him. Put out by his rejection of her, she accuses him of not being attracted to women at all, an insinuation that so upsets Lanval that he blurts out that he does indeed have an incredibly beautiful and totally female mistress who's way more attractive than Guinevere. So now, he's both betrayed his fairy mistress and offended the queen, and long story short, he ends up on trial before King Arthur, and luckily for Lanval, his lady shows up at the trial willing, against the normal convention of fairy tales, to forgive his breaking of his vow her fair appearance proves Lanval's claim true to everyone in Arthur's court, and they ride off together, presumably to the other world, since their love is too great to be subject to the tawdry gossip of the mortal realm. The scenario isn't exactly what we get with Gerbert and Meridiana, but there are certainly a number of beats in common, and perhaps Meridiana should be understood to come from the realm of the Fae. Even though at the end of his tale, Walter Mapp connects her with Gerbert being ensnared by the devil. That's not out of keeping with a general medieval religious view that needed to sort out all spirits according to an angelic-demonic binary, regardless of how gray the distinction might have been in the living folklore. Speaking of folklore, one other feature of Mapp's tale that definitely isn't his own invention is the legend of Gerbert's tomb weeping. This allegedly prophetic phenomenon is recorded by another contemporary of MAP, John the Deacon, in his description of the Basilica of St. John Lateran. Gerbert's tomb still exists, and upon it, one can read a carved epitaph. Uh, this epitaph was added within a decade of Gerbert's death by the third pope to follow him, Pope Sergius IV. Uh, you might recall from the Melrose Chronicle episode that kicked off this diversion into Gébert's legend, that we get a lot of papal deaths in a row, In fact, Gerbert's first successor only lasted seven months. But this shouldn't be too surprising, given that popes tended to be fairly old at their election. Anyway, the epitaph of Gerbert, or should I say Pope Sylvester II, reads as follows, in a loose translation from the Latin verse by Horace K. Mann. This spot wherein are buried the remains of Sylvester will give them up to the Lord when the trumpet's sound shall announce his coming. Him had the maid who cherishes the arts, Rome, the capital of the world, made famous throughout the globe. By his merits did Gerbert the Frank first win the Sea of Reims, the metropolis of his country. Then did he deserve to acquire supreme control over the noble church of Ravenna and to become powerful. A year later, with change of name, he took possession of the Sea of Rome that the world might have a new pastor. The Caesar, Otho III, to whom with faithful loving heart he was ever closely attached, offered him this sea. Both, with the clear light of their wisdom, adorned the times. The whole world rejoiced. The power of vice was broken. Like the key bearer of heaven, in whose place he sat, he received this sea after being thrice called. After he had held the place of Peter for about a lustrum space, death took him from amongst us. The world, but now triumphant, with its peace departed, grew stiff with grief, and the tottering church forgot her rest. For love of his friend, his successor, the pontiff Sergius, with tender piety adorned his tomb. Whoever you may be who turn your eyes to this monument, say, O God Almighty, have pity on him. He died in the year of our Lord's incarnation, 1003, the first indiction on the twelfth day of May. Man also provides a final epilogue to the history of Gilbert's remains, quoting a statement from a 17th-century historian, Responi de Basel, who reported an eyewitness account of the opening of Gilbert's tomb during renovation of the basilica in 1648. He writes, quote, The corpse of Sylvester II was found in a marble sarcophagus 12 feet below the surface. The body was entire and clad in pontifical robes, the arms were crossed, and the head was covered with the sacred tiara. But as soon as the air came thoroughly in contact with it, it fell to dust, and a fragrant odor filled the air, likely enough from the aromatic spices with which it had been embalmed. Nothing remained intact but a silver cross and the pontifical signet ring. End quote. It's likely that the emphasis in this brief account on the body being found entire is a reaction to the dark legend, as we heard it from William of Malmesbury and the Melrose Chronicle, refuting the story of Gerbert having his limbs cut off while on his deathbed in an attempt to escape the devil. It's notable, too, that Mapp gives Gerbert a relatively noble death, uh, in contrast to the mainline tradition of the dark legend, not only asserting that in the end his soul was saved from damnation, uh, but also praising his accomplishments as a prelate. And Now, let's talk a bit about some of Gilbert's accomplishments, uh, specifically as a medieval mathematician. My main source here is Nancy Marie Brown's 2010 biography of Gilbert, The Abacus and the Cross, The Story of the Pope Who Brought the Light of Science to the Dark Ages, which is a pretty bold claim for a subtitle. Uh, I'm not sure the historical Gilbert entirely lives up to quite the implied grandeur of that title, One suspects that if he had managed to be a bit less mired in the political entanglements we discussed in episode 102, he might have become a more seminal scholar with a few more important texts under his byline. As it is, he is at least a significant stepping stone in the development of scientific understanding for the West, uh, primarily as a kind of broker and popularizer of scientific ideas from the Islamic world. Chabert's abacus is perhaps the most emblematic of these. But before we dive into what this abacus was, let's very briefly set the scene for medieval math. In the 10th century, there was a certain sinister mystique attached to mathematics, and even though I still maintain that the dark legend primarily spawns out of political enmity, it is fair to say that someone like Gerbert, who actively worked to advance the study of mathematics and who introduced new tools for its practice, might be believed to have trafficked with evil forces. This suspicion of mathematics was not limited to the unlearned. Uh, Witness this passage from Peter Abelard's Dialectica of the 12th century on whether knowledge can be a bad thing. Quote, In order for the just person to avoid evil, it is necessary for him to know the evil in advance, for he would not avoid it unless he knew it. Therefore, the action of knowing evil can be bad, but knowledge itself can be good. For when it is evil to commit a sin it is still good to know the sin, as otherwise we cannot avoid it. That knowledge also, whose exercise is nefarious, which is called mathematics, is not to be considered evil. For the crime does not lie in knowing by what observances or what sacrifices demons fulfill our wishes, but in doing those things. For if even this knowledge were evil— how could God Himself be absolved from evil, who also comprehends all the sciences He has created, and alone inspects all wishes and thoughts of everyone, and surely knows both what the devil desires and what deeds of ours can obtain His approval? Therefore, if knowing is not evil, but doing is, then malice should be attributed not to knowledge, but to action. From these considerations, we can conclude that all knowledge that comes from God alone and proceeds from His gift is good. Hence, all pursuit of knowledge must be granted as good, since it leads to what is good. Quote. So, while Abelard's conclusion is that knowledge is good, he reaches that by way of calling out the exercise of mathematics as nefarium, uh, nefarious or wicked, implicated in ritual demon summoning. Even though Abelard is writing a little over a hundred years after Gilbert's death, He's reflecting an attitude towards mathematics rooted in the practices that Gerbert himself most tried to challenge. Basically, in the so-called Dark Ages, and still for plenty of practitioners after Gerbert, the study and practice of mathematics was little more than numerology. Such scholars weren't particularly interested in how numbers interact or how to solve problems. Rather, they were focused on the properties of numbers and how those might reveal mystical truths. Now, you also had geometry, which lent itself to more practical problem-solving, but even there, there's a pull in treatises on proportion and symmetries and harmonies towards mysticism and the music of the spheres. And, of course, such mystical numerological principles link up with ritual magic and alchemy and bona fide occult experiments. But what Gerbert was interested in and passionate about was what the numerologists would have considered the dry, common, rough handed side of mathematics arithmetic, the math of accounts keepers and merchants, of reeves and quartermasters. And this brings us to his great contribution to the field, the abacus. While Walter Mapp praises Gerbert's learning in the liberal arts generally, he doesn't mention math or engineering as specific areas of excellence. Uh, again, suggesting an even greater distance between his tale's main character and the historical Gerbert. William of Malmesbury, though, does highlight some specific achievements, especially Gerbert, being certainly the first who seized on the abacus from the Saracens. End quote. Our translator of that text, J. A. Giles, adds a footnote asserting this to be a figurative statement, with the abacus simply meaning mathematical knowledge generally which Gerbert went on to share in a treatise entitled Liber Abaci*, the Book of the Abacus. But Gerbert's treatise is not just on general principles of arithmetic. It does, in fact, detail the design and use of a new kind of abacus, uh, new to Europe at least. The abacus itself wasn't a new invention, far from it. Varieties of abacus had already been in use around the Mediterranean for millennia, typically in the form of tables or tablets or grids drawn on the ground where pebbles or beads or other counters were moved around. In fact, the Latin word for a limestone or chalk pebble is calx, hence calcium. Uh, And you put a diminutive ending on calx and you get calculus, the word for a counter used on an abacus, and the origin for our words calculate and calculator and indeed calculus. The ancient Mediterranean abacus fundamentally took the form of a counting board with these detached movable counters. Uh, We have pocket-sized ones from the Roman Empire made out of metal, where the calculi were placed in little grooves or slots, but they were still loose pieces. The typical image of an abacus that we have today, uh, of a frame with beads strung on a wire or wooden dowels, comes from China, where that style of abacus dates back to 200 BCE. There is debate over whether the basic idea of the abacus evolved independently in the Far East and the Middle East, or if trade carried it from one culture to the other, and then, if so, in which direction. As near as I can tell, that debate is nowhere near settled. So, back to the counting boards of the Roman Empire. Naturally, they were organized around the Roman numeral system, which is biquinary or counting by fives. Joubert's abacus, seized, as it were, from the Muslim scholars of Spain, used a nearly full base 10 system with counters for the numbers 1 to 9, and it's only nearly full base 10 because it doesn't have a proper zero. Zero was indicated only by the absence of a counter. Joubert's treatise and his tenure as schoolmaster at Reims are credited with giving the abacus, now new and improved, a renewed popularity in 11th century Europe, and perhaps helped spur on the eventual transition away from Roman numerals and to Arabic ones, though it was a couple of centuries later that Fibonacci, a name more central to the history of mathematics than Gerbert, really popularized the use of Arabic numerals. Today, we are so accustomed to working with Arabic numerals that it's kind of hard to appreciate just how revolutionary Gilbert's abacus was to the other Europeans who encountered it, uh, accustomed as they were to working with the Roman system. Though Gilbert's book on the abacus is frustratingly vague on many points of its design and use, we are fortunate that a copy of his abacus was discovered in the 20th century, which not only gives us a clear look at its layout, but also proves that he really did introduce Arabic numerals to France. This abacus board was made on a poster-sized piece of parchment, which had been recycled into the binding of a giant Bible that was produced sometime between 1051 and 1081 for Echternach Abbey, and which is now in the National Library of Luxembourg. The abacus was found when the Bible was removed from its binding to be photographed in 1940, but the significance of this particular piece of parchment wasn't recognized until 60 years later in 2001. At that point, scholars could really begin to see how Gerber's abacus worked. The revolutionary thing that his abacus did that feels so obvious and commonplace to us today is that it constructed numbers by putting counters in columns with the rightmost column representing ones, the next to the left, tens, then hundreds, then thousands, and so forth. And Joubert grouped these base 10 place value columns in sets of three, just like we still do in the West today, i.e. you put a comma, or in some countries, a space or a period uh, between the hundreds and the thousands and between the thousands and the millions and so forth. And you didn't just put a quantity of counters in each column, you actually put specifically labeled counters representing each number, that is, you're working with numbers as digits rather than physical quantities. So again, in sharp contrast to Roman numerals and the Roman abacus, the numbers that Gerbert is constructing and doing arithmetic with on his abacus are essentially the same style of numbers we use today, not just typographically, but structurally. Now, a curious feature of Gerbert's abacus is that he presented it with 27 columns. That's far beyond any calculation a medieval person would ever need. That lets you work with 10 to the 27th power, which is more than the number of stars in the known universe, including in all the galaxies, not just the stars of the Milky Way that we can see in our night sky. Uh, Joubert's abacus could calculate numbers greater than the total number of grains of sand on the earth. Nancy Marie Brown suggests that the 27 columns are just Gilbert, quote, showing off. Uh, I would have to wonder if, despite his pragmatic reputation, there isn't some numerological reason for it. After all, Gerber did group his units in threes, and 27 is nine groups of three, or three by three by three, which is a pattern with certain divine connotations. Anyway, How did you do arithmetic with Gilbert's abacus? The table of the abacus was used with counters or markers made from horn, each carved or stamped, as I said, with an Arabic numeral from one to nine, which were then physically moved around the board to make calculations. Uh, Also, I say they were marked with Arabic numerals, which is basically true, uh, but these exhibited some different forms of the numbers than we use today. But still, nine unique digits, which contrasts with the combinatorial characters of Roman numerals. Uh, Also, as I mentioned earlier, it did not have a figure for zero. The idea of zero was indicated by the absence of a counter in a column. And we kind of have to wait 200 years again for Fibonacci to bring zero as a written sign into European mathematics. Because the counters each represented an individual number and value, this also meant that, unlike the Roman abacus or most East Asian models, the operations are more symbolic. You aren't moving a certain number of beads up or down to add or subtract, uh, changing value by physically changing quantity. Instead, on Jabert's abacus, it's more like you are laying out a problem with numerals the same way you would write it on paper today and solving each column more or less in your head, and putting the appropriate result counter at the bottom of that column, and building up the whole final answer. And really, that's also what led to the ultimate decline of Gilbert's abacus. It was supplanted by simply performing arithmetic with pen on parchment or stylus on wax tablet. Once the abacus had firmly established the place order system for using the nine numerals, pre-drawing out all the columns on a counting table just wasn't necessary, which really isn't a decline of Gerbert's abacus as much as it is an adaptation of it to a different medium. An interesting detail in the history of the adoption of Arabic numerals in the medieval West is that we find a lot of early manuscripts in which we can see numerals recognizable to a modern reader copied out, but they'll be written upside down or sideways or in other unexpected orientations. Why we see this so often suddenly becomes very easy to understand when you realize that many people's first experience with these new symbols was with those carved on the round abacus counters that did not have an obvious orientation. How would you know what direction a 4 is supposed to point if it's just on a round disc that could be turned in any of 360 degrees? And so it's not surprising that some early scribes had misconceptions about how to write these new numerals. Oh, and speaking of counters, here's a fun bit of etymology. The cousin to the more formal abacus is the simple counting board, often found copied onto the tabletops of merchants and bankers, and which also utilized beads, tokens, or counters in a grid to reckon accounts. And that is why, the place where you receive service at a commercial establishment came to be called the counter. And then it's because of the conventional designs of those commercial service points that we began calling certain types of household furnishing counters or countertops. And you don't find that non-commercial usage of counter, uh, i.e. a kitchen counter, until the late 1800s. So, Jabir was apparently a wizard with his abacus, uh, not literally, despite the dark legend. But his biographers remarked on how he moved the counters with amazing speed and performed quite difficult calculations with apparent ease, and his advice on mathematical problems was widely sought out, as we find in his surviving letters. And the abacus wasn't his only contribution to the field of scientific tools. He also developed or improved on astronomical accessories, like the armillary sphere, which is a model that shows the major lines of latitude and longitude and astronomical features like the ecliptic, the path of the sun in the sky. It shows these with usually metal rings surrounding a globe of metal or wood. We have a fascinating bit of evidence concerning Joubert's armillary sphere in the form of a series of letters in which he deals with a colleague's request that he construct a sphere for them. Just as for the William of Malmesbury episode. After giving so much air to the dark legend, it only seems fair to let Gilbert himself have the last word. So we'll conclude with these letters, which also gives us a taste of the human being behind the history. Often medieval letters are these formal things whose conventional rhetoric obscures the individuality of the writer. But in these, I think, some genuine emotion really comes through. Uh, particularly some testiness at being pressed for a favor at a bad time. I think it lets you connect with Gerbert as someone dealing with relatable job stresses. In this first letter, Gerbert is responding to a fellow renowned teacher, Rimi of Trier, who has asked him a mathematical question about how factors of numbers work, and Rimi also has clearly requested that Gerbert send him an armillary sphere. Here is Gerbert’s reply. Rance, September 30th, 988. To Remy, Monk of Trier. You adequately comprehended, indeed, how the tenth number measures itself. For one times one is one, but every number does not therefore measure itself, because it is equal to itself, as you have written. On the contrary, although one times four is four, four does not therefore measure four, but rather two, for twice two are four. Moreover, the letter I, which you have found written down under the ten times figure, signifies ten unities, which, separated into six and four, make a sesquialter ratio. The same may be observed in the ratio three to two, where unity is a difference. We have sent no sphere to you, neither have we any at present, nor is it an object of small work to one so occupied in civil causes. If, therefore, you are eager to have this that involves so much work, send to us a carefully written volume of Statius Akaleidos, in order that, unable to have the sphere gratis because of my excuse of its difficult construction, you may be able to wrest it from us as your reward. The next letter shows that while Remy did send Gerbert a copy of the book he was interested in, it was an imperfect copy, a point Gerbert tries to raise with politeness, but he can't quite hide his frustration. Ross, January 15, 989 To Monk Remy Your goodwill, beloved brother, was overburdened by the work on the acolydos, which, indeed, you began well, but left incomplete, just because your copy was incomplete. Since we are not unmindful of your kindness, we have begun to make the sphere, a most difficult piece of work, which is now both being polished in the lathe and skillfully covered with horsehide. So, if you are weary from the excessive anxiety of anticipation, you may expect it, divided by plain red color, about March 1st. If, however, you are willing to wait for it to be equipped with a horizon and to be marked with many beautiful colors, do not shudder over the fact that it will require a year's work, as for giving and receiving among our followers, how true the saying that he who owns nothing need return nothing. Gerbert evidently missed his March 1st delivery date, and it seems that Remy was quick to ask for a shipment update. But Gerbert had good reasons for not finishing this sphere. At the end of January, just two weeks after the date of the previous letter, Archbishop Adalbero. Gerbert's ecclesiastical father figure died, and we have the contest over who will succeed him—his own pick, Gerbert, or someone of more prestigious birth and less entangled with the party of the Holy Roman Emperor. The French bishops opted for the latter, and rather than becoming Archbishop of Reims, Gerbert had to submit to being the personal secretary to the new Archbishop, Arnulf, illegitimate son of the French King Lothar so Gilbert is not exactly in the best of moods to be pestered about a favor that was already a bit of an imposition. Rance, March 7th, 989. Gilbert sends greetings to brother Remy. My father Adelbero, of divine memory, was both the equipoise and the force in all causes dependent upon the Eternal, and now that he has been changed into the original elements, One might think that the world is slipping into primordial chaos. Thus, during this great disturbance, and I might add, confusion, you, forgetting to observe proper manners, have inconsiderately taken into account only what you hope for, what you seek. In a crisis of this sort, when the state itself has been abandoned, must recourse be made to the comments of philosophers which at this time are not necessities? I keep silent about myself, for whom one thousand deaths were planned, both because Father Adelbaro, with the assent of the whole clergy of all the bishops and of certain knights, had designated me as his successor, and because the opposition maintained that I was the author of everything that displeased them. For only a wooden sphere must we abandon friends who, like me, had enjoyed the friendship of blessed Father Adelbaro. Hence, endure the delays imposed by necessity, awaiting more opportune times in which we can revive the studies now already ceasing for us. Ouch. In the surviving correspondence of Gilbert, we next find him replying to Remy nine months later, before which he seems to have made a trip to Trier to see Remy in person. Since then, things have not improved for Gilbert. Here we see Gerbert reporting the capture of the city of Reims by Duke Charles, the brother of the deceased French king Lothar, who was leading a revolt against the new royal house of Hugh Capet, who had taken the throne away from the Carolingian dynasty. Hugh had been supported by Adelbero and Gerbert. The gates of the city of Reims were opened to Charles the usurper by his nephew, Archbishop Arnulf, Gerbert's former competitor and now boss, who has dragged Gerbert into this treasonous plot by virtue of being his master, needless to say, Gerbert is not happy, as this letter shows. Ronce, December 10th, 989, to Remy, monk of Trier. Your request, sweetest brother, so often repeated, indicates sufficiently well on what billows we are tossed. You know, you know what shipwrecks we have suffered after we left you. Indeed, as a result of the very burdensome labors of the summer and after, we contracted those illnesses whereby pestilential autumn almost wrested our life away. Violent fortune, taking back everything she had bestowed, added to this mystery through those brigands who laid waste the city of Rons. Now we bewail the captivity of our friends, and we meditate with sleepless worry whether we must change our home. On this account, our district sorrows, on that, it mourns. Fear and trembling encompass the walls. Want presses hard upon the citizenry. The clergy of both orders groan over the future desolation. Therefore, let it be your service. To lift your hands to the Omnipotent One in our behalf, and if the divinity lessens the punishment of this sinner, we will not be unmindful of your kindness in everything. So, once more, these letters trace that persistent pattern in Gerbert's life from the soothing contemplation of science into the turbulent tempest of power politics. I argued previously that it was the politics and not the mysteries of science that germinated the dark legend of the magician pope. But it is his science that, in the end, rehabilitates Gilbert, and this rehabilitation initially comes from an unexpected source. As we've seen, Gilbert's contemporaries, uh, even some of his political enemies, acknowledge his scholarly brilliance, and none of them actually accuse him of witchcraft or necromancy. That legend arises a bit later during the conflict between the popes and antipopes as a way to tar one branch with a legacy of devilry. And then, because it's too enticing a story to dispel, a number of later writers, like William of Malmesbury and Walter Mapp, perpetuate the idea of Gilbert's bargain with the devil. The next real effort to debunk the dark legend actually comes from Protestants, They use the dark legend as evidence of the innate superstitiousness and anti-intellectual character of Catholicism. Only Catholics, they argue, would take an accomplished scientist, a beacon of rationality in the Dark Ages, and transform them into a devil-worshipping warlock. And that buys your early modern Protestants some moral high ground, right up until the witch panics of the 17th century. But they do initiate a reappraisal of Gilbert by later historians. Today, Gerber might not be a household name, or at least a classroom name, like Fibonacci or Muhammad ibn Musa al-Khwarizmi, uh, whose surname, al-Khwarizmi, is the origin of our word algorithm, but the abacus maker is recognized here and there. One example, the International Center for Relativistic Astrophysics has an annual conference called Gerbertus in honor of Gilbert and his contributions to the advancement of astronomical understanding. And with that, we conclude our look at Pope Sylvester II, a.k.a. Gilbert Doriac. But while we're still in an arithmetical frame of mind, let's figure out our mathematical riddle that I set up uh, two episodes ago. It's a word problem from the classical world preserved in the Palatine anthology, and here it is. Boyhood had filled a quarter of his life, his youth one-fifth, a third part as a man he spent, and on the threshold of old age, thirteen more years complete his life span. So, the challenge is to work out the length of each of those phases of life. As I mentioned back when I introduced this riddle, you don't really find algebraic equations until al khwarizmi develops what we would now recognize as algebra in the mid-ninth century— And then it takes longer for those ideas to reach Europe. In the mathematics of the classical world, they would have approached this kind of problem of solving proportions and ratios by using the principles of geometry, turning this person's lifespan into segments of a geometric figure. To be honest, I don't know enough about how that works to walk you through it. Uh, Certainly, it's easier to just assemble the basic algebraic equation. Uh, one-quarter X plus one-fifth X plus one-third X plus 13 equals X and solve it. That gets you the solution. X is 60 years. He spent 15 as a boy, 12 as a young man, 20 in his prime, and then the given 13 as an elderly man. If you would like to get some advance notice of upcoming riddles and mystery words, you can follow us on social media. We are at Medieval Death Trip on Instagram, and at Medieval Death Trip at medievalist.masto.host on Mastodon. You can also support the show on Patreon at patreon.com/slash/mdt-podcast. Patrons get access to bonus audio features, such as a recent appendix to our last Halloween episode, in which we present an additional short story by Richard Garnett. As always, I'd like to extend a hearty thanks to our new and returning patrons, especially as we enter this holiday season. So thank you so much to Horse Farmer, Glenn, Haley, and Hattie. Until next time... Remember always to consult a lawyer before making any bargains with strange women in Forest Glades, and thanks for listening.